Uh, welcome to night three. We probably should have just ended it tonight <laughs> in our discussion of the Trinity. Um, so tonight we're going to be going through uh, Jesus, focusing on Jesus. I uh, want to start by talking uh, some Old Testament prophecy slash allusions to Jesus. Um, first thing I want to do is talk through uh, a heresy that we want to keep in mind so we don't fall into that trap. Uh, then we're going to look at Jesus and the Gospels, kind of what did Jesus say about himself, um, and then Jesus in the letters. And if we have time, we're going to get into, um, we will get into humanity and divinity because that's our last question. So that's where we are headed tonight. If you had asked for a uh, book, they are out on the table next to the questions. You can just put your money in the envelope that says book money. So, all right, let's uh, open with a word of prayer. And then if there are any questions from last week or thoughts that are lingering that we need to address, we'll address them uh, first. Father God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for another opportunity to gather and another opportunity to dig into your word and to seek your face and to seek your wisdom and your discernment as we try to understand the Son and as we affirm the reality that, that he is the revelation of you. And so help us to keep that in the forefront of our minds and help us to come to this as an act of worship and that this would draw us closer and deeper into uh, our communion and our relationship with you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd be with us and be our guide along this journey and in our conversations. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, any lingering questions uh, from last week that didn't get addressed or that came up that you may have? Okay. So, sounds good. Uh, so what I want to start by talking about is the, the Arianist um, controversy, heresy. Um, Arianism is one of the top two controversies or heresies around uh, the Trinity. And you're like, oh, I thought we start easy. <laughs> Why are we starting in the weeds? Well, um, Arianism deals specifically with how we understand the Son and how the Son uh, relates to the Father. And so back uh, in the hundreds, the early hundreds, uh, meaning about 400, Arian, uh, Arius, came up with this idea that because, does anybody, for bonus points, who knows what this controversy or heresy is? Gunner, you don't count. Deb knows in the back. What is it? It's uh, close to that. More specifically, it's that uh, Jesus is under the Father. So that Jesus is subordinated to the Father. Another word for it is subordinationism. 
Um, and, and obviously we can see how when we start talking about father-son relationships within uh, our context, we would easily say, well, the son must be less than the father because, uh, especially in a patriarchal society like was in the ancient Near Eastern world, is uh, the son cannot be equal to the father. So the son must be uh, subservient to the father. Well, that creates all sorts of problems, which uh, Deb was hinting at. If the son is somehow less than the father, then the son is no longer God. And if the son is no longer God, when he comes to the earth, we have a problem because he is less than God. And if you're anything less than God, within our understanding of the atonement, it doesn't work. And so then we start getting into the, this controversy um, that then splits the Eastern and Western church dealing with the Holy Spirit, which we'll get into uh, in two weeks. But talking about what is the substance or the essence of the Trinity or the Godhead. So we talk about this idea of each part, each person of the Trinity is made of the same substance. And the similarity, the, the problem becomes when we say, well, they are a similar substance. Well, they can't be a similar substance and also retain their overall godness. So when we start looking at this idea of Arianism uh, and the, the subordination of the Son, it, it leads to all sorts of problems, not just in how we understand who God is and the fact that it is um, anti the Bible. It, that's why it's called a heresy. But then we start applying Arianism into other areas of our lives. And we say, well, because the Son is subordinate to the Father, when we look at relationships and we look at our relationships, we reflect Trinitarian relationships and we say, uh, somebody must be subordinate to whoever the head is. You can see where this would be a problem. And so um, it's interesting, Arianism has crept back, even though we dealt with it. Um, when we talk about the creeds, we dealt with it during uh, very early church history. But you see Arianism starting to creep back in um, recently. And uh, Swain talks about... Um, Wayne Grudem is probably the most notable name in there in this new, newfangled subordinationism um, that he calls out and says, danger, warning, uh, you should probably avoid uh, going into those, into those things. The, the challenge that we've talked about before is, you know, when... When we get our, our theology out of whack and we try and compensate our theology to support another position, we have a problem. And so um, that's partly where Grudem finds himself in trouble is he's trying to 
reshape his Trinitarian view to bolster uh, his, his complementarian view. And you say, well, that seems odd. Well, depending on how you look at it, um, it's not as odd as you would think. So that's um, one of the main heresies that, we, that has been um, dealt with in the church, in particular as it relates to Jesus. So remember, some of you don't because you weren't here, and I was telling Lee that I forgot the whiteboard that isn't up here to draw the picture so uh, we have the Western view of the Trinity is the Father uh, begets the Son, and they are on this upper plane of the triangle, and then together they uh, breathe out the Spirit. Versus the Eastern view, um, the Father plays a much more prominent role in the Eastern view of the Trinity. Questions? All right, so let's look at this idea of, uh, well, first of all, when we talk about Jesus, um, one thing we need to be aware of is we oftentimes want to talk about the work of Jesus versus the person of Jesus, and, and we can't do that. We can't differentiate the two from one another. Jesus is his work, and his work is part of who he is. And so, as we talk through this, part of the conversation will uh, structure around, really, why did he come and take on bodily, physical, human form? Um, If that is our view of who Jesus is, the limited view of his work, we have completely missed Uh, the magnitude of who Jesus is in the second person of the Trinity. And so I want to start in the Old Testament, and I want to look at um, some of these allusions to prophecies toward um, who Jesus is. Now, uh, we've already covered the ground around the Jesus being pre-existent. When we talk about Genesis 1, when we talk about John 1, Jesus has always existed. He doesn't come and start to exist when he is born um, here on the earth. He has always existed. There is never a time that Jesus didn't exist. Because if there is a time, again, we have a problem with how we conceptualize and can understand who um, God is. So one of the big themes um, that we see in the New Testament is this idea of uh, the Son of Man, and that really comes out of the book of Daniel. Uh, If you look at Daniel uh, chapter 7, we start to see um, this phrase looking at the Son of Man, and I can tell you that we are not going to be doing Daniel uh, in the adult class this fall. That has been nixed from the, from the selection process. So in verse 13, we get into this, uh, this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there was one like a son of man, 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So in all prophecy, this prophecy existed for Daniel's time. This, this was not uh, completely looking forward to Jesus. It was both and looking forward to who Jesus would be when he came in his bodily form and also who Jesus is uh, throughout. But there, there's also another ruler that would have came um, that would have also fulfilled this prophecy. As we know, Isaiah talks a lot about um, the Savior, uh, the servant, the suffering servant. If I can remember how my Bible is organized. I think it changed a little bit. Isaiah 42, um, we see these visions of who Jesus is. 42 verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So we know that this... uh, section of Isaiah is then quoted in the New Testament. Today this is fulfilled. Um, We start to see some of that uh, coming forth. Likewise, uh, Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn, this is God speaking, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return, To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Okay, that sounds vaguely familiar. We see Paul um, speaking of Jesus about this exact, these exact words. So we have the, the connection between God proper in the Old Testament um, being drawn into identifying who Jesus is. Certainly, um, all of Isaiah 53, uh, we start looking at this idea of prophesying towards who Jesus will be when he does uh, come in his bodily form. You know, looking at uh, verse 4, Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then it just keeps going. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. Uh, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So we see all of this prophecy in the Old Testament moving towards this place where Jesus will come uh, and, and be present, physically present. If you look at Psalm uh, 2, again we see 
um, what God is doing. Verse 7 of chapter 2, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here we get this concept and this language of begotten. One of the biggest things that we have to keep at the forefront of our minds, begotten is not created. So when we talk about the begetting of the Son, it is a distinct word that is not a created word. Because, again, to be created means that you have a starting point. And so for the Son to be begotten by the Father, it has, it has to be an all-time existence. Yes. I'm not familiar with that. I would certainly be more than happy to take a look at it. Uh, so then if we look at um, Psalm 110, again, these clear allusions slash prophetic words about who Jesus is. I'm sorry, what? Yes, yeah, Psalm 110. Uh, verse 1. You thought, you thought I was saying Psalm 1, verse 10? No. I try to go, uh, yeah, I try to go chronologically in the book. So if we were at 2, I wouldn't go back to chapter 1. We'd like to move forward. Uh, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Again, this is another, uh, another word that is then used as Jesus. And then in verse 4, which is going to come up in Hebrews, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so we see this language that then is picked up by the writer of Hebrews and quoting Psalm 110 about who Jesus is. So we have all of these all this groundwork that gets laid out for Jesus to come uh, and be physically present on the earth to take on bodily form, and we know uh, what happens. So first question I want us to discuss tonight is, um, now if you took the printed version, you realize that I'm, a, I'm not a bad proofreader, I'm just not a proofreader. <laughs> and Lee's like, I think the first question, 
the second part of the first question doesn't make a lot of sense, so then I had to revise it, but I had already printed off the 20 copies and I wasn't gonna reprint them because I didn't wanna just waste that paper. So in what ways do the prophecies of the Old Testament teach us about Jesus? Why do you think the Jews who were steeped in the Old Testament completely missed Jesus when he came? So in what ways do the prophecies of the Old Testament teach us about Jesus? You know, some of these prophecies and these other verses, the allusions that they make to Jesus, how do we uh, then understand him more fully? And then why do you think the Jews uh, who were steeped in the Old Testament completely missed Jesus when he came? I understand not all of them completely missed him, uh, so I'm making a gross overgeneralization, but I think you get the idea. Okay? So group up into your groups of three to five, and then um, we will, I'll give you guys about 10 minutes, and we'll start looking at uh, some of the Gospels. All right. Let's uh, come back together. So, uh, thoughts or analysis, feedback. I knew you, you guys, I figured your group brought some analysis to the table. Yes. Right, that is, that is the other question that is a little bit more direct. You know, would we, would we have recognized him? Um, so I formed it in more of like, why do you think they missed it? <laughs> Certainly we may have missed it. We probably would have missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, how does the centurion, right away in Matthew's gospel, he's like, I know who you are, and you can heal my, my person. And he gets it. And so, how is it that some people saw it so clearly and other people completely missed it? Um, and part of the reflection in that is, how do we learn from that and, and that we don't make that same mistake uh, and we don't repeat uh, the past. Yes.
there was certainly some of that, the people that, that had no other option, that, that he was like, well, this could be an option. I mean, that's what he says. The blessed are the poor in spirit. Like those who are spiritually bankrupt, you'll be blessed because you'll be able to see, see me as, as you should see me. Yes. they could sense the difference of what, what they thought they wanted and what they, what they actually had, what they needed in him. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Gospels and, and how we understand who Jesus is through the Gospels. Um, certainly each of the Gospel writers is writing uh, to a different audience with a different uh, narrative approach. And so we just acknowledge that each one of them has their own themes, even though we see uh, similarities, most of the similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, but let's just kind of walk book by book and, and point out some high points of how do we understand who Jesus is through, uh, through the Gospels. What I want to uh, make sure we are well aware of there became uh, this big search for the historical Jesus. That is uh, a movement that came out of biblical criticism, uh, certainly during modernism. And if you ever, like National Geographic or any of those shows that are like the search for Jesus, they're searching for the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, through completely different lenses and using different uh, tools. We are not searching for the historical Jesus as we go to the biblical text. So just a, a sidebar. So um, if we look at uh, the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, uh, and we see what is said to Joseph about who Jesus uh, will be, in verse 21 of chapter 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had, uh, had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Which is... So, what's his name? <laughs> you shall call him Jesus, because he's going to save his people from his sins... Uh, he shall be called Emmanuel. So is it Jesus, or is it Emmanuel, or is it both? I have uh, mentioned this before. Jesus' last name is not Christ. Uh, so no, just pay, pay attention as you, as you are not only thinking, uh, but also listening to other people. We, we often refer to Christ to Jesus as Christ, which obviously it works, um, but Christ 
is not his name. It is, in fact, a title. So, what's Matthew doing? What are some of the high points of who Jesus is throughout the book of Matthew? Well, one of the things uh, that sticks out about the book of Matthew is Matthew is full of all sorts of Jesus teachings. Anyway, if you have uh, a red-letter Bible, um, Jesus teaches throughout the book of Matthew Unlike in the book of Mark, we get far less Jesus teaching. And, and part of that is because Matthew is writing into this Jewish context, and the concept of rabbi is very important to the Jewish people. And so we get all of these teachings of Jesus, and so clearly Jesus functions as a teacher or a rabbi. Now, if you're looking to do a little deeper dive into specific uh, Jesus study, um, this book, Christology, a global introduction by uh, Veli Mati Karkainen, just a great name. Uh, he talks about, he points out that none of Jesus' followers ever refer to him as teacher. Everyone else that refers to him as teacher is the other people. So think about that. They all refer to him as Lord, but they do not refer to him as teacher. Now, Matthew himself refers to Jesus as teacher, sort of. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, verse 28 of chapter 7, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So we clearly see Jesus functioning in this role of teacher throughout the book of Matthew. One of the key themes in Matthew is the establishment of the kingdom of God. So we see Jesus as bringing about the kingdom of heaven and ushering in the kingdom of heaven here on this earth. And so what does that look like? Well, part of that looks like the healing, the physical healing of people. Like I mentioned, the faith of the centurion happens right after, um, right after the Sermon on the Mount. And then in uh, chapter 9, we see another healing. We see all of these healings like boom, 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 boom. Clearly, a key theme throughout the book of Matthew is this concept of healing. But what does he do in, in chapter 9, verse 2? And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> okay. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, again, here's that theme that we picked up from Daniel, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So part of this, as we talk about all of the healings that Jesus does, 
that's where, when we say Jesus came to die on the cross. Yes, that, that's accurate. It's like saying, for dinner I had rice. I did have rice, but I had a lot more than rice. Jesus came not only to die on the cross and to be resurrected, but he came to bring about these things that he does, like these physical healings that he does. And it's fascinating because, as will uh, next week, Derek's going to teach for me, uh, this idea that Jesus is indwelt with the Spirit at his baptism, and it is by the power of the Spirit that Jesus does these things. So if we are indwelt with the Spirit that indwelt Jesus, what does that say, what implications does that have for the lives that we live today? One thing that often gets overlooked uh, is, again, what Jesus is trying to do, and he says explicitly what he is doing in verse uh, 25 of chapter 11. He says, At this time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from wise men and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, which gets into what we had just talked about, why the Jews couldn't see it. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. We talked about that last week. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, again that teaching idea, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your, for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here Jesus tips his hand and he says, part of why I came, this is part of why I came, is to unburden those who would follow him. And oftentimes we, we just skip over this or we don't really want to apply it the way that he seems to apply it. Likewise, we skip over, we skip over this, this identification of Jesus as gentle and lowly. Again, we, we just, that's not the view of Jesus that we want even though this is the words of Jesus himself saying, this is who I am. I am gentle and lowly, and I come to ease your burdens and provide a place of rest for your souls. It's fascinating. When we look at the Gospel of Mark, Mark's Gospel is the shortest, and it is the most uh, linear it pretty much everyone, most everyone agrees that it's the source for Matthew and Luke's gospel. They just expound on it a little bit differently. 
But Mark starts out his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he says, As it is written in the pro- Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And it's interesting because we, we always apply that right to John the Baptist. But why is it that he gives it to us earlier and ties it into who Jesus is? The key theme of the, the Gospel of Mark is this idea of Jesus being the Son of Man. And there's all this Son of Man language throughout the Gospel of Mark. And in addition, the second kind of key theme of the Gospel of Mark is the idea of the suffering servant. So if we talk about the Son of Man, we look at uh, Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Again, this, this story, uh, he's, he's forgiving the sins of a paralytic. He's healing this person. He says, uh, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take your bed, and walk. But you may know, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So we see this Son of Man qualifier, and it's it is clearly a nod to the humanity of Jesus. So we see two different identifiers of who Jesus is in his divinity, the Son of God, and his humanity, uh, the Son of Man. Again, in verse 28 of that same uh, chapter, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And this Son of Man um, category is a much larger biblical theme that we see uh, taken from the Old Testament and brought into the New Testament. One thing that's very interesting about the book of Luke, uh, Luke, is, Luke and Acts are one book. We have separated them in the canon. Uh, but the, the thing that Luke does with his gospel is he tries to create this connection again around the humanity of Jesus and drawing in these uh, direct connections between Jesus being uh, the representation of humanity here on this earth. In essence, the you could say the idealistic life or the ideal life of a human being is portrayed through the gospel of Luke. If we jump to the Gospel of John, yes. If you're wondering how to live your life as a human being, 
This is the example. Yes. Yeah, so we, uh, you know, when we talk about what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ, it's to be a mini-Jesus. It's to be uh, either, some people identify it as Christoformed, Christoformity, um, which I have this uh, great book that I haven't had a uh, chance to read yet um, that certainly is fairly at the top of my list about how do we seek to live out the life of Christ in our own lives. And Luke, so Luke gives us all these details and all of these examples and teachings about this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be a human being in the very essence of humanity. You know, you care for people in this way. You don't worry about these things because you trust in God. You do all of these things um, as a human being. So, as we talked about last week, um, the I am statements of John. Do we want to try and guess all seven? I should have brought candy, and then you would have then you would have been more interested in guessing. Yes. Yeah, you're right. He didn't ever say, I am. Oh, you have them on your sheet. <laughs> I forgot that I did that. <laughs> yeah, Bryce was like, yeah, candy, I'm ready. Here we go. So uh, <laughs> Jesus never said, I am the Rice crispy, um, which is interesting. So if we look at 635, uh, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we get this imagery of Jesus being uh, the sustenance upon which we are to live. The Jews weren't really excited about that. (laughs) We flip over to chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, again, we get, the, we get these declarative statements around the essence of who Jesus is. And when we tie them in with, this, with the idea of creation, we see that, that Jesus doesn't, exude light he is light so when we say god loves that's true but god is love in his very essence and so these i am statements are not only allusions to uh, worldly things but they are the essence of who jesus is yes Yes. Brilliant. Oh, sorry. Making this connection, when you see them all laid out, you see, oh, so when God says to Moses, I am, 
and then Jesus says, I am, it's like, ding, light bulb, epiphany. Um, 10, chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, uh, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. Uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So obviously, when we see not only the good shepherd, but also the door idea and then the way, the truth, and the life, we see the exclusivity of who Christ is. And really, Jesus is the, the, vari- the variant uh, that starts to distinguish Christianity from the other Abrahamic uh, religions. So if we just skip down uh, to 5, I am the good shepherd, as I just read that, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we see this interesting Trinitarian interplay between the Father and the Son and the role of the Son in this uh, position. Yes? Yes. And Christianity. Yes. Well, certainly Jesus makes these declarative statements that fractures off Christianity into a clearly exclusive claims that come only through Jesus. Well, when Jesus says, I am the door, I'm saying I'm God, and the only way to get to God is through me. As if you, on the other side of this door, is eternal life, if you want to come and enter in here, you have to go through Jesus. And Jews reject that. Muslims reject that. I mean, other faiths are okay with, okay with it because, like, well, you just make that claim and we're all just going up the same mountain. You know, how do we, and this is a different conversation for a different time, how, how do we deal with the exclusive claims of Jesus in a pluralistic world? And that's where, uh, as we were talking about last night at uh, membership, this idea of you know, unity in the essentials, uh, in the non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Well, 
we fought the Crusades around the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ in an inappropriate manner. And so Christianity has gotten a, rightly a bad, bad reputation in the world because we say if you don't come to God through Christ, well, we might as well kill you. So, so that becomes the clear, you know, we see these exclusive claims that, that pe- make people bristle. Because this is where we start to go down the road of the ambiguous person that lives on the island. <laughs> right? That's, it's like, okay, how about we just talk about, like, the person that lives next door? <laughs> Well, because that's, that's not what we want to talk about. So, uh, verse, 11, or verse 25 of chapter 11, he says, I am, uh, let's just read it. Went to the eye doctor yesterday because I need to be able to read the words. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall uh, yet he shall, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, "Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world." And then the last one, verse fifteen, or chapter fifteen, I am the vine. Verse one. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And then skipping ahead, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he is that he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So, we get all these clear I am statements about Jesus. What I want us to um, flip back to you is when he's talking about being the gate and being the good shepherd, um, he makes the distinction in verse 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So again, when we think about life in Christ, and when we say, why did Jesus come to this earth? It wasn't so that we had a place to go when we die. Like if all Christianity is boiled down to is where do I go when I die, we have missed clearly what Jesus said he came to do and clearly what he does throughout his time on earth. And I think so often we miss that. Jesus doesn't come in human embodiment just to secure a reservation for us in heaven. That, wasn't, that was not the sole purpose of him coming and being with us. And so it, when we boil it down to that, it's not, <laughs> frankly, it's not even that interesting People are like, well, I'm not really into this whole Christianity thing because, you know, 
Who knows what happens when I die? And I'm like, it's not just about that. Jesus says, I have come so that you may have rest and have life and experience what it means to live fully. Um, So what I want us to do is uh, the next set of questions. How do you view the miracles of Jesus throughout the Gospels? What do these miracles teach you about the nature and character of Jesus? Which of the I am statements brings you the most hope or draws you closer to Jesus? So three uh, questions to mull over and discuss with your groups. Ready, break. All right. Um, let's come back. Okay, next time I'm setting a clock. Okay. Now we're, now we're back. All right, so um, one thing that, as you know, John did a uh, big thing on Sunday talking about um, how the writer of Hebrews lays out who Jesus is in the beginning of Hebrews, and we're just going to see that over and over um, throughout the whole book of Hebrews. What I want to touch on a little bit, so I don't want to get into Hebrews, I want to touch on some Pauline understanding of who Jesus is, um, and also looking at um, a clear, not all of you were here for 1 John, and there is a clear indication in 1 John of some early church uh, issues that were coming up about uh, who Jesus is. So, uh, one of Paul's number one title for Jesus, anybody want to take a guess? Think of Philippians. What did John keep saying over and over in Philippians about Jesus is Lord, yes. Paul uses Lord uh, 230 times uh, in all of his letters to refer to who Jesus is. And, And so much of Paul's theology around Jesus is around this idea of justification. Um, And so he... So much of our understanding of the atonement and the cross is guided by Paul's understanding and, and Paul's writings. But one thing he does uh, point out at the beginning of the letter to the Roman church is he says, concerning his son, meaning Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was a declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we see that um, throughout. Again, we remember throughout the book of Philippians, this idea of 
Caesar was Lord, meaning the person to whom you show allegiance to while here on this earth. And so Paul, throughout his writings, wants to drive home this point of Jesus being Lord. So if we uh, flip to 1 John... we see another key indicator of uh, who Jesus is, not only in his uh, functionality, but in his very essence. So, verse 1 of chapter 2. Uh, oh, and Dave asked, I can I'll put together all these verses uh, kind of in their context, so that if you want to put together... Um, since some of you aren't writing them down, um, you can have them. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here we have John talking about the importance of Jesus being our advocate before God, um, speaking to God on our behalf. You know, we see that same language as we had mentioned earlier in Melchizedek, this reference to Jesus uh, being in the line of Melchizedek, which we'll unpack a little bit more in Hebrews. It, Jesus being that mediator, that high priest, that the person through whom we uh, can go to the Father and, and speak to the Father. Paul talks about this same imagery in Ephesians uh, when he's writing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and just because you got to love Paul's gigantic uh, run-on sentences, let's start in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Yes. Yeah, we I did read first John. Ephesians. Could we rewind the tape? Didn't I say Ephesians? Was I mumbling? Should I, should I bring the mic closer to my face? See, we're, I'm looking at the clock. You guys wanted an extra two minutes, so I'm just having to speed up. Slur, slurring my words. I guess I, after the eye doctor, I should go see a speech pathologist. So, Ephesians uh, chapter 2. But, um, but now in Christ Jesus, verse 13. Uh, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new uh, man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then in verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit 
to the Father. So again, this importance of uh, not only the flesh, the fleshiness uh, of Jesus, but also uh, the functionality of creating a way for us to God. Now, to go back to 1 John, there was clearly a, and we know this because this heresy developed, that the humanity of Jesus descended upon Jesus at his baptism and left Jesus before he died on the cross. So there's this semi uh, union of humanity and divinity. And, and so Paul is trying to, to undercut that, and John is also trying to undercut that as he writes this, his first letter. Uh, verse 2 of chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, again, the... The humanity of Jesus is of utmost importance. And so we were talking about this again last night at at the membership class and how we understand humanity and how we understand our theology of sin is directly related with how we understand the humanity of of Jesus. And so if Jesus is not fully man then we have a massive uh, salvation, soteriological, uh, fancy word, problem around the atonement. And then when we talk about Jesus being this exemplar, or this example, you say, well, he wasn't fully man, so he, when he says that, you know, this whole idea of, you know, God understanding what we're going through, it's like, well, he didn't, he was only partly man. And and so not only Paul, but John affirms the full humanity of Jesus and the full divinity of Jesus. And so we have to hold those two things in tension with one another. And so then that becomes the question that we wrestle with is. What, what does Jesus do with his divinity when he comes to earth? You're like, well, he eats it at Christmas time. Sure, he could. I don't like it personally, but. Well, we know from back uh, being in Philippians, we see what Paul says he does. Um, in the the Jesus hymn. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, fully human, or I mean fully divine, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be uh, held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. So what does Paul mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity? And that becomes this very challenging question for us to understand. And how do we understand uh, divinity in general, as we've talked you know, in week one about God proper? And, and so as we look at Jesus' life and his interactions and how he goes about um, some of the questions that he asks of God, some of the ways that he encounters things, um, do we get glimpses of what it meant when he uh, left, he emptied himself, he took these the attributes of omniscience and so on and so forth, and he left them in heaven um, to come to be here on, on the earth? And we really don't, we really don't know. <laughs> And, and it's so interesting because oftentimes the things that we, the most ambiguous things in Scripture, I was talking about this last night, uh, the most ambiguous things in Scripture become the most hotly debated things <laughs> because they're ambiguous. And so we can't, uh, we can't come to a full understanding of them. And so it leaves all this uh, room to to discuss. So, yes. One hundred percent. That is the pivotal question. Because you know, and that's where the, the search for the historical Jesus in some ways is a bit of a ruse because there is really, there's no debate. There was a man who physically existed by this, in this region at this time whose name was Jesus. Like, no one's really even debating that. So then what we really have to ask ourselves is how, how do we wrestle with the divinity of Jesus in the second person of the Trinity in that place? One hundred percent. You you cannot have you cannot lose either of them. You, you know it's <laughs> yeah. Like if you're ever trying to hold something up, you're like, if I move too far this way, I'm going to lose this one. But if I move too far that way, I'm going to lose this one. And so you're just holding this tension. And then it gets, it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
So the, when Jesus prays, not my will, but your will be done, what is he doing? Uh, that's a great question. It's clearly, he's, he's clearly showing his, human, his humanness. You know, as we look at, as we look at that place, where he's at, and you know, how much you know, we read a few examples where Jesus knew their thoughts. So is that a nod to his omniscience, like his all-knowingness? But if he's truly um, if if he has retained his omniscience then why would he ask his father to take away the cup of suffering when he knows it can't be taken away? And so those things leave us scratching our head and saying, we don't know, we can conjecture. You know, in his humanness, he's at a, he's at a breaking point where his human will it seems to be rising up, and he's identifying that, and he's owning that. You know, when, when we see him tempted uh, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you know, why, why is it that he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he's tempted? Well, he, I mean, in essence, he takes his physical body to the brink and shows that he can be sustained apart from you know, his physicalness is not going to overcome his divinity and his dependence on God. Yes. Yes, I think he's clearly showing his humanness in a number of ways. You know, we see that we see the human Jesus over and over and over. You know, when he weeps over the city, when he weeps over his friend dying, when you know all of all of these things that that he does are clear indications of his humanity playing a prominent role. Yes, he didn't, right, he didn't leave his body behind. Yes. Yes, and he stands up. Yes. Yes. Which then begs the question, how does the humanity of Jesus interplay into the oneness of of the Godhead. And we just, you know, mind-blown emojis, I guess. <laughs> um, so the, que- the question uh, to leave with, we're not going to discuss it here um, because our time is expired. What challenges do you have around balancing 
the humanity and divinity of Jesus. So some interesting things to think about um, as we as we leave and go into next week. So next week, uh, like I said, Derek's going to be talking through how do we understand the relationship between Jesus and the the Spirit. Um, so how do we understand Jesus and the Spirit's relationship? And then the fifth week, the last week, we'll talk um, about the Spirit and the role of the Spirit, and also we'll address, uh, somebody asked, right, about the Spirit and prayer. So I haven't forgotten. And then, then we could have like a potpourri, because um, we don't really need to talk about the Spirit all that much. Um, if we have other questions that come up, let me know. We can, we can talk about that on the last on the last week I'm tongue in cheek talking about the spirit I did a whole f- six weeks on the Holy Spirit so trust me I'm all, all about it so was that a, a one a two uh, yeah so that we And they're not just straight Rice Krispies, they're, fru- they're like fruity Rice Krispies. Well, and the vitamins, of course. Yeah. Was that a, oh, uh, scratch, scratchy scratch. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's pray and we'll get out of here. Uh, Heavenly Father, again, thank you for tonight and we just uh, we do awe, sit in awe and wonder about who you are, and we get these glimpses, and we are able to grasp momentarily the magnificence of of who you are, and, and the the gift of your Son, and the willingness of your son to come and to be present with us for for the opportunity for us to experience life truly the way it should be experienced and also to provide a way for us to be in relationship with you. And so we just pray that that each day as we seek you and we seek to understand you more and more that it would be an exercise of love and worship and that you would be gracious enough to reveal yourself to us more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Grab your book if you uh, had asked for a book.